Glad you're with us on this Resurrection Sunday. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Glad you're here. Perhaps you were invited by a friend, or maybe you were dragged along by family, or maybe you're just looking for a place to worship. Whatever the case is, we are really glad that you're here with us this morning. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, know that you are welcome. We've been making our way through a series on Genesis 1 through 3, but we're putting a brief pause on that for one week only to turn our attention to Matthew 28. Today we're talking about the resurrection, which seems appropriate since it is Easter Sunday. Our goal every Sunday when we walk through these doors is that we would be able to point you to the hope of Jesus Christ. And certainly that is our hope this morning. And in turning to Matthew 28, I think we'll do just that. So let me pray and ask that God be gracious to us. Father, we want to pause here and just ask for your help this morning. Lord, we acknowledge that we are easily distracted. We acknowledge that there is a tendency within us to want to think about other things. Other things that don't matter as much as what we're about to talk about. But we pray that you would help us now, that your spirit would be heavy upon this room and that you would help us to hear your word clearly and to be able to set aside the distractions of life, the concerns of life, the worries of life, and to be able to focus on what your word would teach us. God, it is our expectation that every time we open your word, you speak, and that is our expectation this morning. We're praying that you would speak powerfully to us through your word here in Matthew 28. God, we're praying that you would minister to us in our weakness, that you would minister to us in our confusion, that you would minister to us in the midst of life's chaos. God, would you please just be gracious to us and speak to us through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. I think it's safe to say that we live in an age of information overload. Between the internet and social media and 24-7 cable news outlets, We are constantly inundated with the latest developments and the newest tragedies and the most recent calamities. Whether it be natural disasters or global wars or economic concerns or political happenings or school shootings or modern controversy or sporting events or weather predictions or legislative battles or celebrity gossip, there is seemingly no end to the news cycle. We move from one controversy to the next, one disaster to another, one piece of breaking news to another piece of breaking news. And the end result of this constant news cycle and oversaturation of information is that it's easy for us to become numb and almost hardened to breaking news. As an example in my own life, I still remember where I was when I first heard about the Columbine High School mass shooting that happened in April of 1999. I was a senior in high school and we were gathered in the high school cafeteria for track meeting when that awful news broke. It deeply affected me to the point that I can still remember exactly where I was even though it was 24 years ago. But what bothers me is that even though I'm still deeply grieved when I hear news like that today, in fact, the news of the Nashville shooting grieved me just a few weeks ago, I'm not as affected as I once was. My heart has become numb, a little calloused. And to be clear, it's not just one type of news that my heart has become calloused to. Anymore, when I hear about a political scandal or natural disaster somewhere around the globe, or the latest controversy that's taking place in some school district or state legislature, I often find myself feeling unengaged and unmoved. News that at one point would have broke my heart now sometimes just makes me yawn. And I don't like that. But it's a reality. Familiarity and information overload can oftentimes make us ambivalent, indifferent, just plain numb. And actually, I think that is the challenge for us this morning. Many of us are so familiar with the story that we're about to talk about, that Jesus rose from the dead, that we've become numb to its actual meaning. Now, to be sure, our numbness to the Easter story is different than our numbness to world news. Our numbness to the resurrection story isn't because we've heard so many stories like it. No one hears the Easter story and thinks, oh, another story about a guy raised from the dead who happened to be fully God and fully man. Heard that one a thousand times. No one hears that, or no one says that. 
Now, the issue with the resurrection, resurrection story is not that we've heard so many stories similar to it. The issue is that we've heard it so many times that we've lost sight of why it matters. Listen, I don't know everyone's background in this room spiritually. Whatever your background is this morning, I want you to know I'm really glad that you're here. And I'm confident God has you here for a reason, but I don't know everyone's story. So it's possible there are some in this room who've never heard about Jesus being raised from the dead before. And if that's the case, I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so excited we get to talk about that story together. But for the vast majority of us in this room, I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that this will not be your first time that you've heard Jesus rose from the dead. And the danger in that is that because you've heard this story before, whether it be two times, ten times, fifty times, a thousand times, ten thousand times, is that numbness and callousness and indifference are a real possibility. In the same way that we become numb to the news because we've heard so much of it or because we've been oversaturated with it, becoming numb to the resurrection story is a real possibility simply because we're so familiar. But my prayer this morning, and this is often my prayer on Easter Sunday, is that we would hear the news this morning as if we're hearing it for the first time. And to encourage you to that end, I'm going to ask you to turn here in just a second to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to observe the reaction of the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. We're going to see how they responded when they learned that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And as we observe how they responded, it's my prayer that God would use their reaction to soften our callous hearts, to open our eyes once again to the beauty of the story, and to remove apathy, that we would be able to respond like those who for the first time realize Jesus is alive. That's my hope this morning. So Matthew 28, if you're able to stand, I'm going to ask you to do that at this point. The reason why we do that is just to demonstrate our reverence for the reading of God's Word. Same way we might stand for a flag or a dignitary, we're standing now for God's Word. Remind yourself that this is His Word. So the words will be on the screen, you can follow on that way. You can listen as I read or you can read along in your own Bibles. Matthew 28, starting in verse 1, the Word of God says this. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. It's the word of God. You may be seated. Now the most important thing we learn here in Matthew 28, the passage we just read, and the most obvious thing that we see in Matthew 28 is that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead. He was crucified on the cross for our sins, to go back a little bit earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. He was crucified on our behalf, taking God's wrath for us. And in being crucified, he died. Not just kind of died, or almost died, or metaphorically died. He died, died. He was dead and buried in a tomb. But the good news in Matthew 28 is that he did not stay dead. Three days after his death, he rose from the dead, and he is still alive today. And without question... That is the focus of this passage, and without question, that is also the focus of our Christian faith. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, then we would still be stuck in our sins. Our faith would be futile. If someone could walk in this room right now and conclusively prove to me that Jesus' bones were still buried somewhere in the Middle East, 
I would resign my job on the spot and I would abandon the Christian faith. Because if Jesus did not raise from the dead, if his bones are still in the tomb, if he is not alive, then our Christian faith is a sham. And we are to be more pitied than all men, to use the words of 1 Corinthians 15. But hear this and hear this clearly. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He rose from the dead and he is very much still living today. To quote the angel in Matthew 28, he is not here for he has risen. So Jesus really did die. He really was buried and he really rose from the dead. He's not in the grave anymore because he's alive. And my whole goal this morning is to simply remind you of that good news and encourage you to respond to it as if you're hearing it for the first time. And so again, to that end, my goal this morning is to simply walk through Matthew 28 and point out the reaction of the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And then subsequently, I'm going to encourage us to think about our own response. But before we do that, before we get to the response of the eyewitnesses here in Matthew 28, I think we need to first set the stage by walking through the first seven verses of the passage. We don't really get to the responses until verse 8, but the first seven verses set the stage. So let's start in verse 1. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now there are a couple of important pieces of information there in verse 1 regarding the setting and characters involved. First of all, the event takes place after Sabbath and toward dawn of the first day of the week. In other words, we're talking about Sunday morning here. Jesus was crucified on a Friday, and on Sunday morning, a couple of his followers make their way to his tomb. And interestingly enough, his followers are not Peter or James or John in this case, or any of the apostles. Instead, we're told in verse 1 that it is Mary and Mary Magdalene. Now, some of the other gospel accounts indicate there were some other women with them also, but for Matthew's purposes, he zeroes in on Mary and Mary Magdalene as the main characters. And the fact that he does zero in on them is historically significant. In the ancient world, the testimony of women was generally not allowed in legal context. So the fact that women were recorded as the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, and by the way, this is not just in the Gospel of Matthew, but the other Gospels also, that tells us something really important. It tells us that this account that we have here in Matthew 28 is not a legend or a myth. No ancient legend would have included women as the first eyewitnesses. So the reason why they're included here in this story is because they really were the first eyewitnesses. In fact, most of what we're looking at today in terms of reaction from Jesus' followers is the reaction of these women. And that's entirely appropriate because they were the first eyewitnesses. And so understanding that helps us to understand the story as it unfolds. And it does unfold in verses 2 to 4. Verse 2, And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now for the record, there's no indication here that Jesus was set free from the tomb by the earthquake or by the actions of the angel. In his resurrected state, Jesus did not need the help of angels or earthquakes to get out of the tomb. Rather, as scholar D.A. Carson puts it, the stone was rolled back, the seal broken, and the soldiers made helpless not to let the risen Messiah escape, but rather to let the first witnesses in. By the way, one of my favorite details in this entire account is found in verse 4. In verse 4, we're told that for fear of the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, let's be clear here. These guys that are trembling are not a bunch of wimpy guys who would have been afraid to go down to the basement because there might be a few spiders. All right, that's not who we're talking about here. These are hardened soldiers who probably, most likely in this case, were trained to kill if someone was going to come and try to take the body. So we're not talking about cowardly guys scared of their own shadow. We're talking about battle-tested soldiers who are falling to the ground in terror. 
that tells us something of the majesty and glory of God. That when upon encountering an angel, their reaction is not, let's fight, and their, rea- their reaction is, we're going to die. There's also tremendous irony in this story. As scholar R.T. France points out, those assigned to guard the corpse themselves become corpses, while the corpse they're guarding is already alive. Now, given the scene in verse 4, it's no wonder that we read what we do in verse 5 and following. Verse 5 says this, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. Now, given the trained soldier's response, trembling like dead men, it makes perfect sense that the angel says what he does to the women. Don't be afraid. And then the rest of verses 5 and 6, he gives reason as to why they don't need to be afraid. Namely, they don't need to be afraid because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's risen. He's not here. And as evidenced by the angel's invitation to come see the place where Jesus lay, this is no metaphorical resurrection. This is an actual physical resurrection. Jesus was physically dead, and now he's physically alive. And the angel's final instruction in verse 7 is to simply go and report this news to the disciples so they can meet Jesus in Galilee. That brings us now to the response in verses 8 to 10. Verses 1 to 7 help us to set the stage, help us understand the background. But it's in verses 8 to 10 that we see the response of the first eyewitnesses to the amazing news of Jesus being raised from the dead. And again, my hope this morning is to simply walk through this passage, verses 8 to 10, and see their response so that we might consider our own response. So let's walk through verses 8 to 10. I'm going to point out four different responses that these women, these eyewitnesses have to the good news of Jesus being alive. All right, so let's start first. First response, they responded with fear. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. Now this is where we have to be honest, isn't it? Most of us, when we think of the Easter story, I don't think fear is the first thing that comes to our mind. I know it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. One of my earliest childhood memories of Easter involves a giant stuffed Easter bunny. And I mean a giant stuffed Easter bunny. In fact, I would just call him a rabbit. He graduated from bunny to rabbit stage. He was four or five feet tall. When I look back on the pictures of me with this rabbit, I was dwarfed by this rabbit. He was gigantic. I'm not entirely for sure how we came about him. I think we won a contest. But nevertheless, we had this giant Easter bunny in our house. Now, it's been a while since I've seen any pictures of that rabbit. And it's been even longer since I've seen the rabbit himself. He went to go where all stuffed bunnies go to die eventually, somewhere in the trash. But even without having looked at that rabbit or, picture, or seen that rabbit in a long time, I feel confident in saying this. This rabbit was not scary looking. He did not have big fangs. He did not have beady red eyes. He did not have claws on his hands. My recollection was simply that he was a pleasant looking fellow. And at some level, I think that rabbit is kind of symbolic of how we think about the Easter story. When we think about Easter, we think of pastel colored eggs and fuzzy yellow chicks and pleasant-looking rabbits, and fun Easter egg hunts, and lots and lots and lots of candy. And listen, none of those things are scary. Easter is a holiday that we tend to associate with peace and serenity and calmness. And I'm not denying that peace and calmness are part of the story. But surprisingly, I think this is a little surprising, fear is part of the story too. In this passage alone, fear is mentioned on four separate occasions. Now granted, two of those occasions are instructions not to be afraid. But even after the angel tells the women, do not be afraid, they still departed the tomb in fear. Now, we need to be careful, we'll get to this in a second, to point out that they did depart in great joy also. 
And in the end, I think their joy outweighed their fear. But nevertheless, fear is part of the story. And the question I would ask this morning is simply, why? Why would the resurrection elicit fear? I think the answer to that question is that the resurrection was a clear indication that Jesus is indeed not like us. And that is both comforting and terrifying at the same time. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus does something miraculous, his disciples are consistently amazed, but also they are consistently afraid. In fact, one of the striking things about reading through the Gospels, and I would encourage you to do this sometime, just read through the Gospels and note how many times the disciples see Jesus do some miracle and their response is fear. And the reason why they're afraid is because when Jesus demonstrates his power, there's this realization, he's not like us. And there's something about his otherness, his not-likeness, that is a little bit scary. I think we get this in other areas. For example, if I encountered a bear in the wilderness, my first reaction would not be to think, I bet he's cousins with Yogi. Let's get him a picnic basket. No, my first reaction would be, it's a bear. He's not like me. I'm going to stay away from him. How much more, then, should we stand in fearful awe of a God who created the universe by a word? Of a God who can walk on water or tell the wind where to stop? Or tell the ocean, here you go, no further. A God who can conquer death. Now to be sure, Jesus encouraged the women, don't be afraid. And I don't think we're meant to be afraid of Jesus in the sense that we don't want to approach him or that we don't want to spend time with him. I don't think that's the case at all. On the contrary, while the disciples were consistently fearful in the presence of Jesus, they were always drawn to him. They always wanted to be with him. So when I talk about fearing Jesus, I'm not suggesting that we should run from him or that we should avoid him or cower in the corner. What I am saying, though, is this. It's okay and good and wise for us to recognize Jesus is not like us. To encounter Jesus is to encounter the supernatural. And in the resurrection story, we're reminded of that. Well, when the women hear about the resurrection, their first response is fear. But notice, secondly, they also responded with joy. Now, in our mind, those two things don't go together. Fear and joy don't go together. But in the Bible, we see, this co- we see this combination on a not unusual basis. As the psalmist says it in Psalm 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So in that psalm, you have fear and joy placed hand in hand. We see the same thing here in Matthew 28, again, verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Because I think it's good for us to recognize that fear is part of the Easter story. But don't miss the joy that's present here. And don't miss the emphasis on joy. In fact, Matthew inserts an adjective next to joy. Great. They had fear, but they had great joy. So they're going. They understand Jesus is not like us, but they also are extremely joyful about this. And from the perspective of the women, it's not hard to understand why they would have been joyful. The teacher they loved, the master they adored, the one they hoped was the Messiah... He was dead, but now he's alive. It's an amazing reversal, and that reversal had to bring great joy. They thought it was going this way, but now it was going the other way. I mean, think about it from our perspective. If you got a call from a doctor's office this week letting you know you had terminal cancer and less than two months to live, and then they called back the next day to let you know, actually, we made a mistake. We're looking at the wrong results. You have a perfectly clean bill of health. Now, I'm sure you would be frustrated with the doctor's office. You would probably call them and make sure that doesn't happen again to someone else. But in the moment, I would hope your greatest reaction is one of joy. I thought I was a goner, but now I have more time to live. I thought I was dead, but now I have another opportunity. The reversal of expectation would bring joy. How much more, though, would the reversal here in Matthew 28 bring joy for the disciples? When Jesus died, it wasn't just that their friend and teacher died. When Jesus died, their hope seemed to die, too. 
I mean, think about it from the disciples' perspective. When Jesus was dead, they had to think, maybe Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Maybe he wasn't the one who'd rescue us from our sins. Maybe he isn't Lord and God. But with the resurrection, those hopes are now back on the table. In fact, more than on the table, they are confirmed. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved he is the Messiah. He is the one who'd rescue them from their sins. He is Lord and God. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just that a likable guy came back to earth. Now, when he rose from the dead, he confirmed he's everything he said he was. Namely, he's Christ, Savior, and Lord. It's no wonder then that when the women are running from the tomb, they're running in great joy. Can you imagine the reversal of emotions they must have experienced on that day? They're going to anoint his dead body, and instead they show up, and he's alive. We thought he was a goner, but now he's alive. He is who he said he is. He's Savior, Christ, and Lord. So make no mistake about it. When the disciples, in this case, the women are leaving the tomb, they are leaving with joy. But notice third, that they also responded with proclamation. So they responded with fear, joy, proclamation. Verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now, maybe you've seen celebrations before where someone's so overjoyed that they're running around and it doesn't even seem like they know where they're going. There's a famous clip from the 1983 NCAA basketball tournament that displays that very dynamic. The North Carolina State Wolfpack won the tournament that year and they won on a miraculous buzzer-beating shot. And the famous clip involves the immediate aftermath of that shot. And my favorite part of the video is watching the coach, Jim Valvano for NC State. He runs out on the court, and he doesn't even know where he's going. He's just kind of wandering around aimlessly, looking for someone, anyone to hug, right? That's normal in situations like that to have that much joy. But to be clear, that's not what's happening here in Matthew 28. The women are running, but they're not running aimlessly. They're running with a purpose. They're running to tell the other disciples. They're running to proclaim the good news. Jesus is alive. Proclamation is a huge component of the resurrection story and a huge component of this passage. In verse 7, the angel instructs the women to go quickly and tell the other disciples Jesus has risen from the dead. In verse 8, that's what the women do. They go to tell the other disciples. And then in verse 10, Jesus himself reiterates the importance again. Go tell the others that I'm alive and I'll meet them in Galilee. He tells them to proclaim the good news. And again, this should make sense to us because good news is meant to be shared. I mean, think about this. If something exciting happens to you at school, you want your friends to know. If you get engaged, you want others to know. If your son or daughter does something amazing, you want to share this news. If you welcome your first grandchild in the world, that's not something you keep to yourself. You tell other people. When the women realize that Jesus is alive, their first instinct isn't to think, we should probably hide this. No one else would want to know. No, their first instinct is, we've got to go. We've got to tell people about this. And obviously, given the language of this passage, they are urgent in this task. Verse 8 tells us they departed quickly from the tomb. Tells us also that they ran to tell the other disciples. Now, I have no idea what kind of shape Mary and Mary, Mary Magdalene were in. Maybe they were both training for an ultra marathon, and they're thinking, we can get a workout in as we go here. My hunch, though, is that's probably not the case. My hunch is actually this is meant to stick out to us as kind of unusual. That they would run and the fact that they would run tells us something of their urgency. They had good news, and it could not wait to be shared. Fourth, though, and probably most importantly, notice that they responded with worship. Worship, verse 9. Verse 9 says this, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Now, in verse 9, it's pretty incredible the way Matthew seems to understate the drama of the moment. In verse 9, he simply reports the situation by saying, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
Prior to this moment, the last the women had seen of Jesus, he was dead, being placed in the tomb. And now he's alive and talking with them. And Matthew describes the situation by simply saying, they met Jesus and he gave them greetings. The English translation would probably be, hello. Right? That's the way this story unfolds. That seems to me to be selling short the drama of the moment. I'm not sure what Jesus was expected to say, or I'm not sure what I'm expecting to happen here, but something with a little more fanfare seems appropriate other than, hello. But even without a dramatic scene, it's clear the women still understand the significance of the moment. Because in verse 9, they take hold of his feet in an act of humility and reverence, and they worship him. Now notice, Jesus does not tell them, get up, don't worship me. No, he lets them worship because he knows he's worthy. He is to be praised and honored and glorified because there is no one like him. The response of these women is entirely appropriate. Again, to quote scholar R.T. France, you do not simply offer conventional politeness to someone just raised from the dead. You don't say, oh, good to see you, Jesus. How was your trip? How did it go? And that's not the way you respond to someone who willingly laid down their life and took it up again. The only fitting response in this situation is worship. It's acknowledged Jesus has power over death, that he's defeated sin once and for all, that he is God. And we don't politely acknowledge God. We worship him. We give our allegiance to him. We submit to his reign and rule. So that's the response of the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. They responded in fear. They responded in joy. They responded in proclamation. And ultimately, they responded in worship. And again, my hope this morning is that we would see their response and not just see it as interesting historical information, but rather as a model for us, that we would think about our own response. And so in light of the four responses we see here in Matthew 20, I'm going to challenge you to respond in four similar ways. So four challenges for you in terms of response. Response number one, we should tremble at the supernatural nature of the resurrection. Again, I get we're familiar with the resurrection story. I understand that we've made Easter about pastel colors and cute bunnies. But there should be a part of us that when we read this story or we hear about it, is a little fearful as we think about the supernatural nature of what happens here. Now, obviously, I don't think that fear should drive us from Jesus. I think it should drive us to Jesus. But there should be an element within us that understands he's just not like us. So if you went to Niagara Falls, it would be entirely appropriate for you to enjoy Niagara Falls and want to get as close as possible. But if your response was, I'm going to take up waterfall jumping, in fact, right now here at Niagara Falls, then you probably don't understand the true power of what you're witnessing. It's appropriate to enjoy the falls, to draw close, but we should never forget how powerful they are. In some way, I think the resurrection should draw us close to Jesus. It should capture our attention. It should make us want to be around him. But at the same time, we should be reminded, he's just not like us. There's not one person in this room who could lay down their life willingly and say, I'll be back in three days. That's exactly what Jesus did. He predicted ahead of time. In fact, the angel references, he says, just as he said. Jesus knew he was going to lay down his life and he's going to take it up again. And the fact that Jesus did this means he's not like us. He can do stuff we can't do, which is actually really encouraging. But it should make us appropriately fearful. Secondly, we should respond, I think response two is simply this, we should rejoice that Jesus is alive. Now, I'll admit, sometimes when I look at the world around me, I get a little bit discouraged. Sometimes when I think about my own life, I get a little bit discouraged. But at the end of the day, I am hopeful, and my glass is still half full. And you know why my glass is half full? It's because Jesus is alive. Right? He died on the cross for my sins, but three days later, he rose from the dead, and he is still ruling and reigning. He's seated on the throne, and he will come again to make things right. 
So listen, even if the world around us is going crazy, even if it feels like we're a couple of years away from the robots taking over, even if my own life feels out of control, I can trust in the end things are going to be okay. Right? Whatever worst case scenario you have in your mind, whatever fears you have, you can set them aside if you realize Jesus is alive and he will come again one day to make things right. We don't worship a dead savior. We worship a risen king. So we should rejoice. In fact, I'll say this. If it's Easter morning and you're here and there's not a part of you that's thankful and rejoicing that Jesus is alive, then I would just say you've never really understood this story properly. Because to understand what Jesus does here should produce joy. We were dead, but because of Jesus, now we can have life. It's because he died and was raised from the dead. So I know there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of news every day. But rejoice, brothers and sisters. Jesus is alive. Response three. We should share the good news of the resurrection with others. Listen, if we're quick to share good news, again, something that happens at school, engagement, birth, new job, how much more should we be quick to share the good news about Jesus? That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. If you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, you can have peace with God and everlasting life. I mean, this is amazingly good news. This is news that should be shared. And I know that's easier said than done. And certainly I haven't shared the good news as much as I would like to recently. But I want that to change for me. And I hope that you have a desire to change that also. Because one of the things that I think is clear in Matthew 28 is when we have good news, which we do in Jesus, we should want to share this with others. Lastly, response four. We should worship the risen Savior. As we said earlier, you can't respond to the resurrection story by simply offering up conventional politeness. Oh, that's nice. Good job, Jesus. No, you can't respond in that way. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he said he is. He's Savior, Christ, Lord. And you can respond to that news either by rejecting him as king or by worshiping him as king. There's no middle ground here. Political or polite, excuse me, polite acknowledgement won't do the trick. So if you're here this morning, here's the choice that lies before you. Either A, you reject Jesus as king and you do your own thing. That's why you know that's not going to go well for you. Or you embrace Jesus as king and you worship him, which entails, by the way, that you surrender everything, that you lay down your own crown, metaphorically speaking, and you live for him. To be a Christian is not simply to acknowledge that Jesus existed, that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. To be a Christian is ultimately to acknowledge he is the king, to surrender to his reign and rule, to repent of your sin, to turn from your sin, and instead place all of your trust in Jesus and lay down your life for him. To say, no more is it me, it's for him. Or maybe to say it more simply, to be a Christian is to worship. So listen, I get it. We've all heard the Easter story before, but don't let your familiarity with the story make you numb. Instead, let me encourage you this morning to respond like the first eyewitnesses. Tremble at the supernatural nature of his resurrection. Rejoice that Jesus is alive. Share the good news with others. And ultimately, and most importantly, worship the risen Savior. Because he was dead, but now he's alive. And because of that, we have hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder that we have here in Matthew 28. And I pray that our hearts would not be callous to this news this morning. Oh God, please shake us from our apathy. Please awaken us from our slumber. Please allow us to realize how amazing this good news is. That Jesus is alive. That he died on the cross for our sins. Three days later, he rose from the dead. 
Help us to see that as not just kind of cool news, but news that changes everything. And help us to live accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, stand now for a benediction from the book of Jude. By the way, if you're here this morning, you're still trying to figure out where you're going spiritually, we would love to help you on that journey. If there's some way that we can help you, please find us afterwards. We'd love to talk about how we can get you connected to Christ. The book of Jude says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He's risen. Have a good week.